Thanks for bringing the church into this building. My name is Jamie. I'm a pastor elder here with Cross Point. I'm the guy who on most weeks gets the privilege of opening up the scriptures with you all and unpacking that. And this morning is no different. We're going to dive into the book of Hebrews momentarily. Got two weeks left, including this Sunday morning, kind of crazy. And so, as Jason mentioned, in less than two weeks, we'll be diving into a Good Friday service, our inaugural one of those. And uh, I would invite you into that place. And, and uh, just to let you know, I've already kind of started to put together some thoughts, some notes on paper for that service. And I think it's going to serve us really well. Uh, we live in a, a sea of electronic devices where even the idea of contemplative worship, this idea of slowing down and contemplating, reflecting uh, what Jesus has accomplished for us is really difficult, and we're going to create space for that to happen. So I think you'll be served well in that. And then, uh, as Jason mentioned, also two weeks from now, Easter Sunday, we're going to celebrate the resurrection. And I think for the first time in our church's history, we'll, we'll get to experience, if you're able to make it to both of those services, the true contrast of, of what it might have been like to have looked up uh, on the hill of Golgotha and see Jesus die, and then the contrasting experience of seeing the empty tomb on Sunday. And so invite you into both of those. And then three weeks from now, we're going to jump into the book of Esther. I'm super excited about that. I've started making Facebook posts about it, which lets you know just how stoked I am about that. I, I just love narrative, and it's been a while since we've been in uh, a narrative series all the way back to the book of Daniel in the fall of, I believe, 2016. One of the beautiful things about narrative is that narratives have a way of drawing you in and opening your mind and your heart to things that, that maybe systematic teachings might not do. And so I'll give you an example. Uh, it's very possible to pick up a systematic theology book and to open up the chapter on the doctrine of sin, and to read about that, and to walk away and go, yeah, I'm not really sure that I buy into this idea that man is depraved in his thinking, in his affections, in his will. But it's very possible to grab hold of the next movie in your Netflix queue, or grab a really well-written fiction novel, and work your way through the development of characters in a storyline, and to walk away from that story and go, man is really messed up. Like There's something really problematic about the world and the people who inhabit the world based on some of the things that we see in the characters in this story. And so narrative does. It has a way of drawing things out of us that we might not believe otherwise, that we might not think otherwise, that we might not feel otherwise. And I think the book of Esther is, is no different there. Uh, it's a fascinating story. It has all kinds of character development. It's got romance. It's got violence. It's got everything in between that. It's got the fingerprints of God all over it, though you never see the name of God mentioned once. And so, as I've said a couple times in promoting that series, uh, if you're one of those people who struggles to see God at work in your life, this would be a fantastic series to engage as we see uh, the silent sovereignty of the unseen God. But for now, we will continue to till the soil, to plow ground, to work our way through the book of Hebrews for two more weeks. If you're new, uh, the book of Hebrews is a literary masterpiece. It really is. We have worked our way through one of the most theologically complex books of the Bible in the book of Hebrews over the course of the last several months together. Uh, we've worked our way through a literary masterpiece in the sense that the book of Hebrews really does help us to see how all of the pieces of Scripture fit together. The Bible is made up of 66 books written over the course of nearly 2,000 years by roughly 40 human authors. 
The Bible is written by kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, doctors, scholars, and, and the list goes on. Written in two main languages, both Greek and Hebrew, with a little bit of Aramaic sprinkled in for good measure. Made up of historical narratives, songs, poetry, letters, sermons, architectural specifications, genealogies, population statistics, and so forth and so on. And yet, this incredibly, gloriously diverse book tells one overarching story of redemption with Jesus as the hero of the entire thing. If you have kids in our kids' wing, that's what they're learning about right now, that Jesus is the hero of, of all of the Bible, the one who binds the entire story together. The author of Hebrews does an incredible job of, of connecting all of the dots for us, helping to see through the shadows of the Old Testament and, and then showing us in the New Testament how each of those shadows ultimately points to and finds their fulfillment in Jesus, whether it be Old Testament characters Old Testament offices, Old Testament institutions and practices. Uh, the author of Hebrews helps us to see how all of those ultimately find their fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews is writing to a group of people who are saying, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but they're being pressured from the outside to abandon Christianity. And so as we've talked about over and over again throughout this series, believing that an eyeful of Jesus is what his battle-inflicted audience needs, that's exactly what he gives them for roughly 10 chapters. That's how we began this series, taking a look at Jesus's goodness, glory, and grace from a number of different angles. The final three chapters represent a shift, part two of this series, the author of Hebrews wants us to understand that, that all of those glorious truths, all those truths about Jesus that saturate the first 10 chapters of this book of the Bible, those truths are meant to create in us a settled confidence in God and his promises, a confidence that, that drives us to keep trusting, that drives us to keep enduring, that drives us to keep persevering, to keep running toward Jesus, to use the language of chapter 12, to keep running toward Jesus with all that is within us as he waits for us at the finish line with open arms. And so you could say that the final three chapters are the author of Hebrews' way of pouring fuel onto the fire of our hearts, revealing to us who we truly are in Christ and what awaits those who persevere to the end. And not only that, but showing us what a persevering life looks like. And so that's what we're going to get into this morning. What does is, what is a persevering life look like? What does it look like to run the race in a way that's informed by the gospel? If you have a Bible, you can open up to Hebrews chapter 13. We'll be in the first six verses this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the chairs in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles. Uh, if you don't own a Bible or you have a translation that's difficult to track with, just take that Bible with you as the churches give to you. Let me pray for us, and we will dive in and get rolling this morning. God, thank you for... Chapter 13 of the book of Hebrews. Thank you for not ending this thing 12 chapters in, but giving us a glimpse of what a life informed by the gospel is meant to look like. Chapter 13 is most definitely filled with commands, with imperatives. I pray that you would help us to embrace those commands, to not see them as threatening to the gospel of grace, but rather as an outworking of your grace moving, ebbing, and flowing in our lives. God, would you work to conform us as a people into the image of your Son, Jesus. 
It's in his name that I lift this up by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Just uh, before we even get going this morning, one thing to throw out there, and, and maybe this would be helpful to kind of frame chapter 13, or really uh, any of the New Testament letters that you read, you'll see kind of a pattern. The Apostle Paul does this all the time. He begins with several chapters unpacking the gospel in its fullness, and then he he turns the corner and moves into a list of imperatives on the back end of his letters that show us what a life informed by the gospel is meant to look at look like. And sadly, in a context like ours here in the South, uh, there, there's been an abandoning of the commands of scriptures in the name of gospel centrality. This idea that because legalism has crept into the church, because this idea of works-based righteousness has made its way into the, the church, that the response must be that we abandon the imperatives of Scripture altogether in order to truly be a people of grace. But that's just not true. Um, the, the, the commands of Scripture are not antithetical to the gospel of grace, the gospel of salvation by grace alone. Um, maybe one way to think about it, this, this may be helpful. Uh, there are Theologically speaking, we've talked about this a few times along the way over the past few years. Theologically speaking, there are three ways to consider the law in Scripture. The law has three, three main purposes. Number one, to show us how deeply we are in need of a Savior. So the law shows us that we're dirty. It's like a mirror revealing our sin to us. And yet you can't uh, take a mirror off the wall and scrub your dirty face to clean it. The mirror is meant to drive you to the water, and thus the law is not meant to clean you in that sense before God, but rather to drive you to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to, to get an eye full of the Savior. So that's one way the law is used. The second way the law is used is simply to restrain evil in the world. The fact that, that there is a moral code keeps us from being as, as ugly and wicked as we possibly could be. It, it creates some sort of confinement to evil in the world, and thus you live in a better world than you would live in if there were no moral code. But then the third one, which is the one I think we struggle with maybe the most, is that the law is actually a guide for sanctification in the Christian life. Um, I've used this example before. One of the most helpful examples that was given to me in all of my studies in seminary was, if you think about it this way, you think about uh, if you're a parent, uh, your kids probably, if, if they're human, love ice cream, as all kids in the world do. And if you were to take them out for ice cream, take them to an ice cream shop, you're going to start to say things like, don't throw the ice cream cone, or lick the ice cream cone, or eat the ice cream cone from the top to the bottom, because the other way is just going to turn out horribly bad for you, right? And when you do that, you're giving your child a list of do's and don'ts. Do this. Don't do that. And as you're making those imperative statements, you're doing that for the joy of the child, right? You're doing that within the, the, um, the context of a parent-child relationship. And so when you come to Hebrews chapter 13, we, we've got to get our minds around the reality that God is essentially saying, as, as you come to the end of this letter, that there's this expectation that you've gotten an eyeful of Jesus, that there's a love for Jesus, an abiding relationship with Jesus, that you've been brought in, adopted in off the street, and God is your father and you are his child. And now in light of that parent-child relationship between you and God, now we're going to see how to eat the ice cream cone. 
how to live life to its fullest the way God has designed us to live it. Does that make sense? So when you come to chapter 13, don't look at it as, as antithetical to the gospel, as some sort of enemy of grace. It's not. It's actually an outworking of grace for the sake of, of us experiencing the fullest measure of joy as children of God. Over the past few weeks, we, we've taken a look at some pretty incredible promises for those who are in Christ. I just mentioned one of them. If you're a Christian, God is your father. You are not a spiritual orphan. You've been rescued out of the dumpsters of depravity. You've been given a home and a name. God is your Abba, to use Paul's words, and you are his child. He loves you so much that, that he will do whatever it takes, everything he can to make your heart happy in him. You've been redeemed into a family. That's another truth that the author of Hebrews has brought to bear in the last few chapters. You don't have to go at this thing called the Christian life alone. You've been brought into a family of faith that's meant to help you persevere into the arms of Jesus, lifting you up in moments of weakness, in moments of discouragement, in moments of sin and unbelief, helping you to see and savor Jesus when you're not sure you can keep seeing and savoring Jesus. Going back to last week, you've come to Mount Zion, a citizen of the eternal city of God, a heavenly city where everything will come uh, sad will come untrue and we will be with God forever. Perfect intimacy, as we sang about just a moment ago, between man and God, God's people in God's forever place in a forever covenant with him. No more hiding, no more running, no fear of being banished from his presence more angels than we could possibly count singing of the goodness, glory, and grace of God, brought into a, a family spanning the generations of redemptive history, including all the Christ-loving, Christ-following saints who have gone before us. If you've lost a loved one in Christ, that's good news. Free to bask in the presence of God without condemnation. Free to enjoy making much of him forever in a land of righteousness and perfection. Sounds like a fairy tale, doesn't it? And yet it's actually true. But Jesus is the one who secured that very freedom for us by way of his cross as the centerpiece of that eternal city, lighting up the entire place with his glory like the 4th of July. That's awesome. Picking up where we left off last week, the author of Hebrews closes chapter 12 with these words. He says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That in, in light of all that's ours in Christ, God is worthy of two things. One, our gratitude, the author of Hebrews says, and secondly, our worship. And he doesn't just leave us with some generalized understanding of those concepts of of what gratitude and worship are. Rather, he spends much of chapter 13 showing us what a life of gratitude, what a life of worship informed by the gospel actually looks like. And so if you find yourself asking, how can I express greater gratitude to God for what he's done for me in Christ? How, what, what does it look like to respond to him very pragmatically in worship? Chapter 13 attempts to answer those kinds of questions. Beginning in verse 1, he says, let brotherly love continue. Notice right off the bat what the author of Hebrews does here. He transitions seamlessly from love for God to love for neighbor, the two great commands that Jesus brought before us that we really see instituted all the way back in the Mount Sinai and really into the fabric of creation as God weaved that. Love for God and love for neighbor. He's saying what we think about God has everything to do with how we relate to other people. 
That the more we soak in the beautiful truth that we have been adopted by God, that he's our Abba and we're his children, the more we will treat each other like siblings. I I can't say this enough. If you haven't heard me say this before, I hope this resonates with you. You, right now as we speak, you are not surrounded by church attendees. You're not. You're surrounded by brothers and sisters that that you're going to be around for a very, very long time. So you better get used to it. The church is not a building, the church is not a program, the church is a people. A bunch of adopted kids rescued into a family collectively. And what that means is that we're going to experience some real challenges with each other. If you, if you have a perfect, um, contention-free relationship with all of your flesh and blood relatives, I need to get some time with you this weekend, hear how you've managed to pull that off. Because I have yet to meet a person that that's true of. It, it is impossible for brothers and sisters not to fight from time to time. And so the question becomes, how do we do it? How do we love each other earnestly from the heart? To use Paul's language elsewhere in the New Testament. This is where I think the gospel is, is incredibly helpful. Because the gospel declares to us that God has crossed a much bigger gap than he's asking us to cross. There was a gap between us and God that was of cosmic proportion. And in our most unlovable state, God crossed that cosmic gap and loved us and adopted us into his family. That God's crossing of that cosmic gap between his holiness and our sinfulness, that actually frees us to cross the much smaller gap between us and other people. To love others even when they're most unlovable. That I would say it this way. Let me, let me put this question before you. You, you want to know when it's most difficult to love fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? I think this is the answer. I think it's when we see that the gap between our loveliness and their unloveliness is of cosmic proportion. It's when we forget that the only real gap of cosmic proportion is the one that God crossed to rescue unlovely you and me. And when we soak in the gospel, the gap between our perfections, quote-unquote, and the imperfections of others begins to shrink shrink drastically. That the problem is, it's not that others are too difficult to love. The problem is that we've forgotten that we're impossible to love and yet love deeply in Jesus Christ. So his affection for us is meant to motivate our affection for this family called the church. One very practical way to express gratitude and worship to God for what he's done for us in Christ would be to look out for those in the church in the same way we would our own flesh and blood. To reconcile with those within the church whom we've got real issues with. Because that's what family does. It says, Jesus says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Humble, sacrificial, self-giving love for one another particularly in the low-altitude messiness of the local church, that's a declaration to a watching world that God is real and that he's real in our lives. Verse 2, he goes on to say, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. In, In its original context, the idea here is likely that of being hospitable to traveling missionaries, but the general principle would be to, to steward that which God has gifted us for his glory. And not not simply to open up our homes to others, but our very lives. Welcoming others in for the sake of the gospel. In Christ, God didn't just give us a home, but his very self. That's what the author of Hebrews has been arguing, that we've been given access to the living God. That in Christ, God has been made accessible to us, the curtain torn, to use 
the language that the author of Hebrews uses elsewhere. That, that God cares so much about the value of welcoming others into our lives that he commands angels to present us with those kinds of ministry opportunities. That, that's mind-blowing to me. I don't know about you. Which, by the way, if some of you are angels, well done on being inconspicuous. That you could actually entertain angels in living out verse 2, according to the author of Hebrews. I'm not going to attempt to unpack that because I don't know how to do that. Just bask in, in the amazement of that. Verse 3, he says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. This is not a proof text for prison ministry, though prison ministry can and is a, a beautiful thing. Um, he's talking about those who are in prison for the sake of Christ, mistreated, persecuted. He's saying, remember them, pray for them, love your neighbor as yourself. The church is a body. If one suffers, all suffer. This is nothing new to the original audience of this letter or to those of us who have been in this series uh, dating back even to chapter 10, if you'll recall these words, just a few chapters prior, the author of Hebrews says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that yourselves, you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. He's saying you saw Jesus as better than anything this world could afford you. You've joyfully endured suffering for the sake of the gospel in the past. You've come alongside other sufferers for the sake of the gospel. If you've ever spent any time looking at writings from the early church, it's fascinating. that The early church had an incredible reputation for caring for their own. And it left a lasting impression on those who were not of the faith. Listen to these words from a writing in, in the days of the early church entitled The Apology of Aristides. He says this. He says, if, if they hear, he's talking about Christians, if they hear that any of their number is imprisoned or oppressed for the name of their Messiah, all of them provide for his needs. And if it is possible that he may be delivered, they deliver him. If there is among them, this is mind-blowing, um, if there is among them a man that is poor or needy and they have not an abundance of necessaries, in other words, they don't have a lot to offer, they fast two or three days that they may supply the need with their necessary food. That's pretty wild. Christ followers starving their bodies so that other Christ followers might not go hungry. How in the world do we embrace that kind of empathy and sacrifice? Again, only the gospel can empower that kind of radical generosity. It's when we understand that Jesus was empathetic toward us. In taking on flesh, he saw our greatest need and he did something about it. He had gut-wrenching emotion in the deepest recesses of his being for you. And he entered into your hopeless situation in order to rescue you out of it. The, the gospel is the kindling that fuels our empathy and care for others in the family of God. And that, that empathy and care has radical radical impact on a watching world looking in on it. What, what do you mean you starved yourself so that someone else could eat? What do you mean you went without so that someone else might have their, their needs met? And yes, it probably looks different for us in our context. 
probably more along the lines of we chose not to eat out as much this week so that we could care for our brother or sister within the church family. I don't know what that looks like, but there are ways to embrace that and live that out. And when people look in on it, they don't know what to do with it. It's evangelistically compelling. Moving into verse 4, you begin to see a shift from a, what I would call a church family ethic to a more personal ethic in response to the gospel says this, verse 4, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. In the early church, uh, marriage was, really it was dishonored in, in one of two different ways. Some thought that you couldn't be married and have a strong relationship with the Lord. And that kind of thinking gave way to the kind of celibacy that you see uh, in monasticism, Catholicism, certain strands of uh, of the church throughout history. Leo Tolstoy, uh, the guy who wrote War and Peace and, and Anna Karenina, he embraced that kind of thinking really late in his life. And it was interesting because he was already married. And so he basically chose to check out on his family in the name of holiness. Listen, listen to these words that Tolstoy wrote to his daughter about marriage. It says this, I can understand why a depraved man might find salvation in marriage. But why a pure girl should want to get mixed up in such a business is beyond me. If I were a girl, I would not marry for anything in the world. And so far as being in love is concerned, for either men and women, since I know what it means, he says, that is, it is an ignoble and above all an unhealthy sentiment, not at all beautiful, lofty, or poetical. He says, I would not have opened my door to it. I would have taken as many precautions to avoid being contaminated by that disease as I would to protect myself against far less serious infections such as diphtheria, typhus, or scarlet fever. Quite a hopeless romantic, right? I'm sure you picked up that Valentine's Day card for your significant other a few weeks ago. He says, marriage is a more serious disease than diphtheria, typhus, or scarlet fever. To people like Tolstoy, the author of Hebrews says, let marriage be held in honor among all. But there's another way to dishonor marriage, which is to take the covenant lightly in the pursuit of sexual gratification without bounds. Guys like Tolstoy declared, sex and marriage are gross. The other ditch that veers off the gospel path declares those things to be God, to be pursued, even if it means defiling the marriage bed. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verses 31 and 32, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That the human institution of marriage is meant to put on display the covenant between Jesus and his bride, his redeemed. It's meant to show the world how Jesus feels about and relates to us as Christians. In other words, if you're married, your marriage is meant to be a window into the inner workings of the gospel for people looking in. Can Jesus' blood cover sexual immorality and adultery? Hallelujah, yes and amen. If that's you, you can run to the foot of the cross this morning and drink freely from the well of God's grace and forgiveness. In fact, it's the very gospel itself that, that informs our holding of covenant marriage in high esteem. Marriage is the clearest shadow of the greater reality of how Jesus feels about his church. He's, in, he's enthralled with you, Christian. He's captivated by you. 
He sings over you. You are his beloved, and not because you're lovely in and of yourself, nor am I, but because he is gracious and has given his life as a ransom for you and me. He gave himself up for us, Paul says, that he might present us to himself in splendor. What we put on display in our marriages will impact the way people view the covenant love of Jesus Christ. One of the books that, by God's grace, if I ever get a chance to write one, I think one of the first ones that I would want to write would be entitled The Mission of Marriage. The idea being that marriage is missional in pointing people to the greatest covenant love in all of reality. Moving on to verse 5. The author of Hebrews says, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now the author of Hebrews shifts from sex and marriage to money and possessions. Apparently there's nothing new under the sun, right? Like the same struggles with sin and unbelief a couple thousand years ago are the same struggles today. It's ultimately what he's calling us to is to abandon covetousness for contentment, essentially. In our culture, the reality is that money equals far more than currency, does it not? Money equals meaning. Money equals significance, what you have determines who you are. The world is divided into the haves and have-nots. Nobody wants to be a have-not, right? And so these verses really at their core, they have everything to do with, with our identity. And not only that, but, but they also have everything to do with our security because the reality also is that the more we have, the safer we feel. The bigger the net, the less terrifying the fall. And thus money really Uh, at least the love for money, I should say to clarify, ultimately reveals a lack of trust in God. A lack of trust in him for identity and security. The author of Hebrews says, that is no way to live. It's just not, it's miserable. That kind of approach to life cannot and will not bring ultimate satisfaction nor security. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says it this way, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income, that it's actually a form of slavery. That rather than owning money, we we eventually find ourselves owned by it. Rather than owning possessions, we eventually find ourselves owned by those very possessions. Ralph Waldo Emerson, because I just want to quote as many literary figures as I can this morning, he, he says this, very famous American poet. He says, things are in the saddle and they ride mankind. He's saying we're the animals. We're the ones with the bits in our mouths. Being led, being swayed by the next person, the next thing that we've got to get our hands on. Whoever that person is or whatever that thing is. So I think a really big question to answer with a passage like this is, why do we do it? Why do we live that way? Why do we covet? I'll give you just a few reasons. You could probably easily add to this list, and I hope you see in this the beauty of the complexity of how the gospel works in everyday living. Just a few possible responses to why we covet. For one, we covet because we feel ignored, and we believe that getting our hands on the next thing will cause people to notice us. We covet because we're embarrassed. We're embarrassed by our financial status, and we believe that getting our hands on the next thing will cause people to treat us with some sort of dignity. We covet because we've experienced rejection somewhere along the way. 
And we believe that getting our hands on the next thing will cause people to accept us, to like us. We covet because we're unsatisfied. We believe that getting our hands on the next thing will ultimately make us truly happy in a way that everything else that we've gotten our hands on before that couldn't. Let me just say this in contrast. This is what the gospel says. The gospel says that in Christ, you're noticed by God. He has chosen you for his own. The gospel says you have dignity and worth. You have value in the eyes of God. The gospel says you're accepted by God. You've been adopted in as part of his eternal family. The gospel says you can actually find ultimate happiness in Jesus, that he really is enough. You've got to determine which of those two worlds you want to live in. The one on the left is miserable. The one on the right is actually freeing. The gospel addresses both our struggles with identity and security. You're a child of God. You have all the identity you could possibly need. And he will never leave you nor forsake you. Security. And that identity and security is what we've been given in Jesus Christ. And it frees us to both view and leverage our money and possessions very differently. Which is why the Apostle Paul, a man who had seen the blinding light of Jesus Christ, he had gotten an eyeful of the Savior, could say something like this. Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Paul says, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul says, my contentment is not situational. It's not that if I have a little more, I'll be content. It's not that if I can grab hold of the next thing, I'll finally be content. Contentment is not about having more. He says, it's not a... That if I have a little less, I'll be content. Having uh, Contentment is not about having less. He says, it's that no matter what I have, Christ enables me to be content. And, and here's the biggest piece of it. If all I have is Christ, I have all I'll ever need. That, that's what we're, we're moving toward as we continue to run this race. A deeper belief that if all we have is Christ, we have all that we'll ever need. A, a text like this, really causes us to have to wrestle with the question, is Jesus enough? Is he enough? Or is he simply a stepping stone to something greater than himself? Because here's the sobering truth, and and it was sobering to me as I sat with it this week myself. Jesus will never write the checks for those things that we want more than Jesus. He's not an idol giver. He's not gonna do that. He is a sufficient savior. Here's the crazy thing to think about as you sit in that sobering truth. Jesus died for us while we were still believing the lie that he who dies with the most toys wins. That we didn't believe Jesus was enough and in that he died for us while we were yet sinners. And he even died for the moments that we still fail to believe that he's enough. Isn't that good news? The grace of God is is absolutely overwhelming. Coming back to the end of chapter 12, what we see here in this morning's passage are tangible expressions of gratitude and worship. Do do you see how the gospel informs and empowers every bit of it? All six of these verses? That, That it's the beautiful truth that we've been adopted by God, 
that he's our Abba and we're his children that fans into flame our sibling love for one another, going back to verse 1. It's God's crossing of that cosmic gap between his holiness and our sinfulness that frees us to cross the much smaller gap between us and other people in love, to love them even when they're most unlovable. It's the gospel that fuels our empathy and care for others in the family of God, knowing that Jesus saw our greatest need and entered into that need so that we might have hope and life. He saw our imprisoned souls and gave up everything so that you and I might be made free. He cared for us when we couldn't care for ourselves, you might say. It's the gospel that informs the way we view sex and marriage. We are the bride of Christ. God is enthralled with us. We are his beloved. Even now he sings over you. It's unreal. In Christ, he's so delighted with what he sees that he cannot help but sing over his church, his redeemed. And we get to hold up the marriage covenant as a way of pointing people to his covenant love toward us. It's the gospel that frees us from the love of money, from covetousness. Jesus became poor so that by his poverty, you and I might become rich. The identity and security that we've been given in Christ frees us both to view and leverage our money and possessions very differently, to spend and be spent for the glory of God. And so really, chapter 13 is a call to fix our eyes yet again on all of the promises that find their yes in Jesus Christ, including Jesus himself, who is the greatest gift of the gospel. Knowing that, the fixing of our gaze upon Jesus and all that's ours in him can and will empower expressions of gratitude and worship like the ones we see here in chapter 13. More to come next week as we dive into part two of chapter 13. We'll see more of what it looks like to lick the proverbial ice cream cone, to enjoy this life that we've been given in Christ as adopted children of God. So I hope you'll come back and explore the the final piece of this letter. But for now, uh, we're going to continue in worship in a number of ways through the receiving of communion. So if you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We take the bread here and dip it in the cup, the bread representing Jesus' broken body, the cup representing his shed blood. There are tables on either side of me and one in the back uh, by the coffee table there. And those tables will be open throughout the rest of our service. You're you're welcome to come when you're ready to receive of the elements. Um, in, In the meantime, I would invite you to just spend some time and stop and soak in the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of those things that empower everything we see in chapter 13. Soak in the reality that you are God's beloved. You are his child. You've been adopted in. Soak in the reality that that Jesus crossed the cosmic gap necessary to reconcile you to God. Soak in the reality that Jesus had deep, gut-wrenching emotion for you in the deepest recesses of his being and entered into your plight so that you might have hope. Soak in the beautiful reality that that you are the bride of Jesus Christ, that, that he is the groom who has brought you into this covenant relationship that can never be broken. Soak in the reality that Jesus became poor so that by his poverty you might come rich, become rich. Th- those are just a number of facets that make up this multifaceted jewel of the gospel that we can spend time soaking in that will fuel and empower us to actually live this thing out by God's grace.